Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and we're joined today by Ilya Shapiro. He is the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He is the co-author of Religious Liberties for Corporations, Hobby Lobby, the Affordable Care Act, and the Constitution, and the author most recently of Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court. And he is also, of course, a graduate of Princeton University. Ilya Shapiro, welcome to Madison's Notes. Good to be with you. I always wanted to uh, be a part of Madison's Notes, so this is a great <laughs> opportunity. Um, well, I thought we'd actually start with your biography. Um, you were not born in the United States. You were born in what was then the Soviet Union. Yet here you are, one of the nation's most widely respected commenters on the Supreme Court, American constitutionalism, and more. So how did that happen? Well, like most immigrants, I do a job that most native-born Americans won't, and that's defending the Constitution. Um, yeah, I was I was born in Moscow uh, in the late 70s. We immigrated to Canada, as it happens, when I was four. Uh, and uh, then I came to the U.S. for college to come to Princeton, uh, class of 99. So I'm one of the rare people that uh, you'll meet who's uh, naturalized twice in his life. I became a, a U.S. citizen six years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the converts are always the most zealot or, or frequently so. And, and right. so when I grew up reading uh, history and kind of uh, the political uh, story of America, I was more attracted to life, liberty and pursuit of happiness than Canada's peace, order and good government. <laughs> and it kind of just went from there. Uh, my parents were Soviet trained engineers and they just taught me that communism was bad. Um, mm. And uh, but uh, from, from those small uh, uh, what's the expression from from small acorns, large grow, large oaks grow. So that's uh, right. That's my story. Well, th- there we go. Um, and as I mentioned, you're the author most recently of Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. It's a very interesting book. Uh, lots of interesting stuff in there. And readers might be surprised to learn that the Supreme Court today is not what it always was. Uh, so say a word about the court's humble beginnings and how it was that it became so prestigious and so powerful. So I started thinking about this book after the Kavanaugh hearings, and I wanted to understand uh, confirmation battles, the way that the nomination process has worked from the very beginning, because life did not start uh, with regard to this topic uh, with Robert Bork. There were other things in the past. And as I discovered, uh, George Washington had a nominee rejected. Probably about half the presidents have had trouble filling seats. Um, and uh, you know, in the, in the early days, you even had people declining to serve, uh, yeah. declining nominations, and even declining after they were confirmed. I mean, the state <laughs> of communications was such, uh, and sometimes confirmations happened the same day the nomination came into the Senate, but then you know, people were not in Washington, and it took a while to uh, 
to, to get the news, and they declined uh, serving on the court. In fact, as as recently, not too recent, but as recently as 1882, someone declined to serve after being con- confirmed. That was Roscoe Conkling, the big New York party boss. Um, uh, but in the early days, uh, it really wasn't a prestigious job. The, the court was not, uh, it was housed in the basement of the old Senate. Uh, not many important cases came through. I mean, John Marshall, the third chief justice, presided over kind of the establishment of the court as a true third branch to, to check and balance the others. Um, but yeah, in, in the in the early days, the it was onerous. You had to ride circuit, meaning right. go on horseback, literally, to the uh, uh, various Western, Northwestern, Southern states. Um, and if you're a if you're a successful lawyer or or state Supreme Court justice in in Boston or or Philadelphia or, or what have you, um, you know why leave that to, to come to the swamp in in Washington and and have this uh, not very uh, prominent job, right. Uh, but like you said when describing your own biography, from a, a little acorn became a mighty oak. And I think uh, many today think that the court has far too much power. So who is to blame for this? Is it Congress for refusing to ambitiously counteract the ambition of the court and the executive? Is it the court's fault for being too overbearing? Uh, I'd welcome your thoughts on that. Well, the court is... Uh, I think too powerful, but that's because the federal government is too powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a, a skew in both our federalism and our separation of powers is why we've come to this, and each uh, uh, bears its share of responsibility. So the centralization of power in Washington, not uh, uh, not invalidating, uh, for example, the expansions uh, of the federal government under FDR in the 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, that has allowed the court and the federal government to amass power within Washington, uh, allowing Congress to pass very broad legislation, punting the difficult political choices therein to the administrative state, part of the executive branch. Um, you know, that has, uh, you know, that forces so many issues into the courts because the agencies are then sued rather than hashing out these policy clashes in Congress. Uh, And so the court is uh, to blame uh, in part for its own Uh, Mm self-corruption. But as I said, Congress, uh, this is something that I think Mattis didn't (laughs) anticipate. He didn't anticipate the rise of the party system. uh, But because of that, he he, uh, erred in thinking that each branch would jealously guard its own prerogative. Mm. Uh, Congressmen now have the incentive to, uh, well, they have the incentive to be reelected. But to do that, they punt. Uh, uh, decisions on anything potentially controversial to the executive or to the courts. You know, they won't even consider the constitutionality of something. They're like, well, we'll let the we'll let the courts sort that out. Right. And the executive is is only happy to uh, take upon itself more and more of the rule making, not just the rule uh, enforcing power. This is not something new with Donald Trump and his Twitter account. This is not something new with President Obama and his pen and his phone. I mean, every president going back uh, to Lincoln and before that uh, would try to to grow power um, uh, within his branch. And and as I said, the court has not always been successful in uh, in checking that. And that's why uh, that's part of the story of why we have these cataclysmic battles over Supreme Court vacancies. So a very, very powerful judiciary topped by a very powerful Supreme Court at a time when you have divergent interpretive theories mapping mm-hmm. onto partisan preferences at a time when the parties are more ideologically sorted since at least the Civil War. 
So in, in a zero-sum game, there's a, only a finite number of seats, and there would only be a finite number of seats even if you, you know, doubled the size of the court. Um, uh, these, uh, it's, it's irreconcilable, and so, and so uh, you have these, these big fraught uh, battles. We'll return in a little while to the size of the court and see whether it will double or triple or quadruple in size. But you mentioned Abraham Lincoln, and you shared a quote of his early in the book that I thought was really powerful. Uh, you quote Abraham Lincoln as having said, quote, if the policy of the government upon vital questions is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers. And yet it seems to me that while there are many on the right who will say this, say that our democracy has been usurped by these nine um, elite lawyers in robes, I'm not sure, and you'll correct me if you if you disagree with this, I'm not sure that that is a widespread societal complaint, that the Supreme Court has usurped the democratic process. Why, why is that? Well, this uh, goes in the modern era to the to the Warren court, the rewriting of criminal procedure rules, um, uh, abortion and privacy concerns uh, and other uh, morals uh, regulations, uh, as well as uh, desegregation and the, 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 the civil rights era um, uh, in, in the South was seen as uh, the court overturning uh, democracy in various ways. So it's not always it's not necessarily good or bad uh, when the court um, usurps democracy, as it were, meaning mm -hmm. trumps the decisions, the policy decisions of uh, elected bodies. I mean, the, this is why I think the uh, fight over activism versus restraint is a misguided one, because um, we should be fighting over the correct interpretive theory, not over judicial modes. Is that judge to uh, activist or restrained sure. or, or what have you? Um, at the end of the day, uh, it's theories of the Constitution, theories of self-governance, um, checks and balances, federalism, all of this that that we should be uh, fighting about. But the, certainly the, the, the fact that the court decides so many of the major political controversies in American life um, uh, is a problem. And I think both left and right compare, uh, complain about this when the decisions go against their preferred view. Right. When Yeah, when they go against their preferred view view. Um, talking about the process, the Constitution says that the president shall nominate individuals to serve on the court and the Senate will provide advice and consent. Uh, how has the understanding of advice and consent changed over the years? I, I was struck and really fascinated in your book how you would detail um, often large swaths of senators abstaining from votes um, and even that Clarence Thomas, even in his pivotal and very nasty confirmation hearing, was confirmed, if my memory serves, by a Democratic Senate. Yeah, Clarence Thomas, uh, the vote was 52-48, and the Democrats did have uh, a majority. I mean, historically, this should not be surprising. The opposite party controls the Senate, the opposite from the from the White House. Those uh, confirmation processes are, are much more contentious and just confirmation rates when when it's united government, Senate and White House controlled by the same party, uh, about 90 percent of nominees have been confirmed when it's mm -hmm. divided government, uh, just under 60 percent. And that uh, gap is even greater in presidential election years as we're living now and as we lived uh, four years ago. But the advice and consent clause, um, there's really not much of a definition of, of what that means. Uh, right. you know, originally, uh, speaking of Madison's notes, we know from Madison's notes that originally the uh, 
it was going to be appointing the judges, and that got rewritten to uh, our modern, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the way that the Constitution was, that the, the president shall nominate and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint. Um, and so historically, of the 163 nominations that have been sent to the Senate, uh, 126 of them uh, were confirmed, seven of whom declined to serve. Uh, 12 were rejected, 12 were withdrawn, three were postponed, including under John Quincy Adams, postponed indefinitely. I love that <laughs> euphemism uh, in Senate procedure. And 10 had no action taken. So Merrick Garland had no action taken. He was one of 10. Um, but beyond that, yeah, the, the Senate, uh, you know, a lot of that advice goes uh, before the formal nomination. And we've had in our history uh, key factions of the relevant parties advise the president that the nominee needs to come from a particular state or region or won't have enough support or this or that nominee uh, is going to run into trouble because of industrial interests or agricultural interests or the slavery question or the mm-hmm. different ways that, that politics has has played a role. Um, uh, but but oftentimes, you know, in a lot of votes, uh, senators just couldn't be bothered to get back to Washington to vote uh, or abstained because they didn't want to be seen as taking a controversial vote one way or another. So certainly, uh, you know, forgetting whether the court itself uh, or any particular justice is a political actor, the process of both nomination and then confirmation has always been highly political. Yeah. Um, It's now a common complaint of conservatives that too often justices appointed by Republican presidents drift to the left. Uh, Souter, Kennedy, O'Connor. You don't often hear this complaint from the left that their justices have drifted right uh, beyond maybe Byron White. Um, Why is that? Well, in the modern time and in in, in my book, I divide it uh, like Gaul. My book is divided into three parts. So (laughs) the the first part is the uh, I call the past, which is basically George Washington until 1968. Mm -hmm. 1968 is such a pivotal year in uh, American life generally, yep. political culture, uh, culture, uh, and and law as well. That in, in 1968, uh, LBJ, the the lame duck because of Vietnam unpopularity, uh, failed in his attempt to elevate sitting Justice Abe Fortas to uh, the chief justiceship, allowing Richard Nixon to replace the uh, embattled or controversial Earl Warren. Uh, and after that, Nixon had a couple of uh, nominations rejected. So anyway, the, the modern court, the present, as I call that part in my book, runs from 1968 uh, to, to today to, to Kavanaugh uh, in my book. And um, uh, and so in that modern period, about 50 years, just over 50 years now, um, there have only been four justices appointed by Democratic presidents, two by Clinton, mm-hmm. Ginsburg and Breyer, two by Obama, Sotomayor and uh, Kagan. Carter did not have uh, any Supreme Court nominees, although he got a a consolation prize from Congress with a a significantly expanded uh, lower courts and so got to uh, fill, set a record for the most lower uh, court judges uh, filled in one term. Um, And so there hasn't been an opportunity uh, for Democratic presidents to misfire. But also in the modern era, the legal elite uh, skews to the left. So it's it's harder to make a mistake uh, in that uh, in that sense. Uh, And interpretive theories uh, achieve uh, the desired progressive output uh, much more easily uh, from uh, liberal leaning 
lawyers, whether you call mm -hmm. them pragmatic or looking at the purpose of a statute rather than its text, uh, or living constitution or uh, active liberty, as, as Justice Breyer puts it, they all in kind of the high profile cases end up on the same page, whereas uh, uh, on the right, um, even you know, originalists and textualists can disagree about various things. And then yeah. uh, you have a John Roberts style minimalism or an incrementalism trying to make small steps rather than uh, uh, empower an overarching judicial philosophy. So there's you know more kind of intellectual diversity of, of, of a theoretical framework. And also uh, there are you know, different kinds uh, of misfires. Uh, a Souter or a John Paul Stevens and did, did drift to the left. Kennedy was always a moderate. And of course, Kennedy was, yeah. a, was a compromise sure. pick after Bork was rejected. And then Douglas Ginsburg, who would have been, I think, the most libertarian justice, uh, had to withdraw before being formally submitted to the Senate because uh, it came out that he had smoked marijuana with his law students at Harvard. And I call him the last... Uh, public casualty of the drug war, when you think about it in the last 30 years, mm. has any public official suffered from the disclosure of drug or at least marijuana use? Uh, and then uh, today, <laughs> it, it may well. And then John Roberts is a different kind of misfire, right? I don't I don't think it's uh, correct to say that he has drifted to the left, but he's strategic and he's thinking about uh, institutional concerns, whether he's right in his evaluation or not is a separate discussion. Um, uh, but but that is, uh, you know, a, a different uh, a different sort of thing. And so it's it's harder to get uh, if you're result oriented, a, an exact result that you want. Although in our, earlier in our history, uh, progressives certainly did have misfires. And, and mm -hmm. look at the the er progressive Woodrow Wilson. Uh, right. Uh, if that's even allowed to be mentioned on a podcast uh, originating <laughs> in Princeton these days. Uh, so he had three nominees. And despite having been a storied professor of jurisprudence uh, at Princeton, um, one of them was a progressive, Louis Brandeis, which, by the way, in 1916, I consider to be the biggest, most controversial confirmation fight that, mm -hmm. we've, that we've had. You know, no C-SPAN footage or social media, but so you can't really compare the records to Kavanaugh or Bork or Thomas. But uh, last uh, nearly five months, uh, first mm. time ever Senate con convened hearings because of the controversy over over his uh, being a social crusader for Jewish nominee as well. Uh, and yeah. then after he was confirmed, another justice, Charles Evans Hughes, resigned to against Woodrow Wilson in the presidential election. <laughs> so if you think 2020 or 2016 were controversial in terms of the interaction of the Supreme Court and presidential politics, I'll, I see that and raise you 1916. But yeah. anyway... Wilson also uh, appointed James uh, McReynolds, who was uh, uh, kind of the possibly certainly the biggest bigot of the 20th century uh, on the court, mm -hmm. and also a cantankerous man who just didn't get along with people generally. Uh, he wouldn't pose in the same picture with Louis Brandeis because of his anti-Semitism. Two other of his colleagues uh, quit the Chevy Chase Country Club in suburban D.C. because they didn't want to uh, come across him uh, as often. Just and the, pretty much the only thing he agreed with Wilson on, in addition to the racism, uh, was antitrust. In mm. everything else, he was not kind of uh, he was ended up being one of the four so-called four horsemen yeah. that were voting against the uh, DR's New Deal programs. And then Wilson's third nominee was kind of a, a cipher, only lasted on the court a, a short amount of time and and had no uh, lasting impact. Uh, James Hessen uh, Clark. So. Um, uh, presidents, uh, they, 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 they look at their short term, either politics or what they want to achieve jurisprudentially, 
But who knows uh, what in the long term the real issues uh, will be. It's, it's, it's very hard to predict. Yeah, sure. Just as it seems that it's primarily justices appointed by Republican presidents who drift to the left, it does seem that these really knock down drag out brawls and confirmation hearings. I mean, the Borks and the Estradas. And if you could say more about what happened with Miguel Estrada, I would, I would appreciate that because I think that's one that's often uh, forgotten or, or not talked about as much. But then also Kavanaugh. These are Republican nominees who are viciously attacked and maligned by Democratic senators. It doesn't seem in this modern era to go the other way. Uh, why is that? Or, or is that a fair summation of, of what's going on? It's 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 fair as far as it goes. As I said, there have only been uh, four uh, justices appointed right. by Democratic presidents, sure. plus the nomination of Merrick Garland. And, and Garland, uh, uh, as as you uh, allude, was not attacked personally. That was a process mm -hmm. argument made by right. Mitch McConnell and the Republicans that the, the seat shouldn't be filled. Um, uh, you know, uh, Ginsburg and Breyer, they were both Democratic majorities. Um Sotomayor and Kagan, uh, also, I believe, uh, Democratic majorities. So, again, they didn't have the opportunity for uh, to block them. Uh, and uh, Kagan and Sotomayor did have many more no votes uh, from Republicans than uh, than Breyer and, and Ginsburg did. Ginsburg was confirmed 96 to 3. For that matter, uh, Scalia was confirmed uh, unanimously right. in 1986, the year before uh, Bork, uh, yeah. and, and we can get into uh, why that is. There, there are several reasons for that. Um, but what we've seen is a, is a continuing set of escalations. Um, uh, you mentioned Miguel Estrada. He, of course, was uh, not nominated to the Supreme Court. He was nominated to the D.C. Circuit. Mm -hmm. And in those early Bush years, the Democrats, for the first time, uh, employed partisan filibusters. Um, uh, that had not been done. Even in 1968, I had mentioned Abe Fortas, uh, he, some people call that a filibuster, but he faced bipartisan, never had even majority uh, declared support. So um, uh, unclear whether that's that's truly, it certainly wasn't a, a partisan filibuster. But anyway, in the early 2000s, in the wake of Bush v. Gore, which was seen as another escalation in the judicial wars, the decision by the Supreme Court that uh, uh, ultimately led to, to George W. Bush being declared the winner of the 2000 election, mm -hmm. um, there was um, a, a new strategy proposed by uh, uh, Cass Sunstein and, and, and other academics to, to have a filibuster to pull out all the stops in, in trying to prevent some of these nominees from getting on the bench. Uh, there was some discussion by then-majority leader uh, Bill Frist of exercising the nuclear option, that is, getting rid of the filibuster for nominees, but ultimately uh, the gang of 14, uh, seven Democrats, seven Republicans, agreed not to remove the filibuster uh, in exchange for not having a filibuster, not sustaining a filibuster, except in extraordinary uh, circumstances. So that was an escalation. But 10 years after Harry Reid used that lower court filibuster in, in 2003 with Miguel Estrada, uh, who was blocked uh, to prevent him from being in position to perhaps become the first Hispanic justice, although yeah. that's only if you don't count Benjamin Cardoso, who was descended from uh, Sephardic Jews in, 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 in Portugal. Uh, but anyway, in 2013, uh, Harry Reid, now in the majority, uh, got rid of, exercised that nuclear option to get rid of the filibuster to uh, allow uh, President Obama to to confirm uh, several judges, especially to the D.C. Circuit. 
And then after that, uh, Mitch McConnell said, you will rue the day. Uh, and, it, you know, he rued it only four day, four years later Yeah, that's uh, right. when uh, when the Republicans had the majority and, and McConnell got rid of the, the filibuster and what I like to call the thermonuclear option uh, <laughs> in order to seat Neil Gorsuch in place of uh, uh, for the Scalia vacancy. Listeners will be familiar with what happened in the Kavanaugh hearing. Um, they are now familiar with what happened with Miguel Estrada. But as you suggested, let's go back to what happened. Uh, we have my grandfather, the late Justice Antonin Scalia, who was confirmed unanimously. And then, boom, like a switch flipped. You have Bob Bork being borked. What happened? In 1986, the Republicans had a majority in the Senate. That's important. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, when your grandfather was nominated, he was not up there alone. Uh, Bill Rehnquist, at the same time, who was a sitting justice, was nominated to uh, to become the chief justice. Uh, and Rehnquist was controversial uh, when he was uh, when President Nixon nominated him to the Supreme Court. He was the first ever nominee opposed by the ACLU, uh, in part because of his opinions on criminal uh, justice uh, issues, in part because of memos that he had written when he was clerking for Justice Robert Jackson during Brown v. Board and the, and the desegregation civil rights uh, era. And that those issues came back uh, again when he was uh, nominated to be uh, to be chief justice. And ultimately, uh, for in, in that time, uh, uh, Rehnquist uh, was confirmed by the relatively narrow margin of 6533. Uh, which, again, in those pre-Bork days was was considered fairly narrow. Right. And in addition, uh, Scalia was uh, was affable, personable, you know, his charming personality um, and uh, equally importantly, the first Italian-American uh, yeah. nominee. Mm -hmm. uh, and it sounds a little odd, but in the identity politics of the day, that was a huge deal representing kind of that ethnic group having arrived in uh, the um, the commanding heights of American society. And so uh, Democratic senators and representatives and mayors and governors across the country uh, endorsed him and said that this is great for the community, that sort of thing. So the confluence of those factors, uh, Republicans controlling the Senate, being up there alongside Rehnquist, his own personality and being Italian-American, that's what allowed Scalia to, uh, uh, to easily uh, be confirmed. Uh, the following year, um, uh, Democrats took the Senate uh, Bork did not have that easygoing, charming personality, uh, and he was there uh, alone. Um, and the Democrats uh, smelled blood, according to his writings, and, and away we went. As I detail in my book, uh, Supreme Disorder, had the order been switched, had Bork been nominated alongside Rehnquist and then Scalia the following year, it's very likely uh, that Bork would still would have gotten through and Scalia right. would still have gotten through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As Listeners are, are now aware these are very contentious hearings. Uh, I don't think many Americans like it. I don't think they think it's productive. So let's talk about some potential solutions, maybe ways to take the heat down on judicial nominations. And we'll start with the most popular uh, term limits for judges and justices. You don't seem too optimistic about this, but I'm wondering if you could walk us through maybe some of the strongest arguments you see for and against and then where you come down on it. Sure. Um I had an op-ed in The Atlantic uh, two weeks ago uh, uh, endorsing mildly or at least being amenable uh, to term limits. This is the idea that most commonly that you would have a an 18-year term uh, for uh -huh. each justice. So there's a vacancy every two years uh, during non-election years. And so each presidential term uh, would get 
two justices unless someone died or retired early, in which case you could appoint someone to fill the remainder of, of that term. Um, so this would be healthy or would uh, would increase public confidence because we wouldn't have these uh, morbid health watches for uh, uh, octogenarian justices. We wouldn't have politically timed retirements, this kind of, kind of arbitrary nature of when vacancies arise. Uh, which I think everyone agrees isn't isn't a good way to run the country. Um, and it would sharpen the role of the court uh, in presidential and Senate elections because people would know that uh, it's not some hypothetical or even in years when a justice didn't die, uh, this is what you're voting in part four, who gets yeah. to uh, nominate and, and, and vote on uh, Supreme Court uh, nominees. But um, we have to be realistic about uh, what... Um, what this will and won't do. It won't uh, uh, lower the power of the court. It won't uh, change the ideological balance of the court because you know, imagine now if we'd had uh, for the last 20 years, these 18 year terms, we would have three justices nominated by George W. Bush, four by Obama, two by Trump. In other words, five Republican appointed, four Democratic appointed, the same ratio as we had until Justice Ginsburg's death. So um, again, it, it probably would help public confidence but wouldn't change the substance of the court or its ideological balance. Uh, and it would take a constitutional amendment. Uh, there's currently right. pending legislation to try to do it that way by having the older justices be designated senior justices and not taking away their pay or anything like that and allow them to sit on the lower courts or fill in on the Supreme Court when there's a recusal. But I, I don't think I think that's too clever by half. I don't think that satisfies the constitutional requirement that um, uh, judges and justices uh, serve on good uh, behavior. Mm -hmm. um, so then we come to uh, expanding the size of the court. Uh, yeah. and here, if we were writing on a blank slate, if we were designing the Constitution or the jury from scratch, maybe we would want, say, 19 justices. Uh, we'd have fewer 10 to 9 rulings than we currently have 5 to 4. Each uh, seat of 19 is presumably less powerful and therefore less uh, you know, less significant uh, than than each seat of nine, so uh, conventionally maybe uh, uh, less of a battle. Uh, but of course, we're not writing on a blank slate, uh, and right. uh, getting to any number that's greater than nine uh, uh, can't help but be uh, politicized. Um, mm -hmm. Plus, we sort of this nine has sort of become uh, a norm. It's it would not take a constitutional amendment to change. We've had as few as five and as many as ten. Uh, but we've had nine since 1869. And so um, uh, whenever there's been a court packing that's been attempted, uh, whether successful uh, as in the 19th century or unsuccessful as with FDR in 1937, it's inured to the uh, cost of the party that's proposed it and certainly yeah. uh, to the country as a whole. And so uh, that's probably why uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, for that matter, in the Democratic primaries, uh, we're opposed to it, even as most of the Democrats running uh, seem to be seem to favor it. Uh, now, uh, nominee Biden is is hedging his bets, and, and, and right. both he and vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris don't want to take a square position because mm -hmm. uh, it would be unpopular to endorse it. But on the other hand, if they rejected it, then uh, their base probably wouldn't wouldn't like it. Um, but uh, it's it's basically a a, a very politicized uh, type of reform now. Uh, and anything else kind of more exotic or more radical changes like expanding the court, by, but designating five explicitly Republican five uh -huh. as Democrat and 
five that have to be unanimously confirmed by the so-called uh, partisan justices. Well, I mean, you know, that again is kind of a, a half-baked academic idea because it can hardly uh, depoliticize or legitimize the court by designating two-thirds of its members with an explicit partisan label. Right. And then there are proposals to change the way hearings work or, you know, designate that uh, a certain number of days after a nomination there will be a vote. I mean, look, at the end of the day, all of these sorts of process reforms are rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Because the mm. Titanic is not um, the process of confirmations or nominations. It's the yeah. product. It's the ship of state. And as I said, the reason we have these cataclysmic battles is because um, of these divergent theories fighting over a finite number of seats at a time when those theories map onto partisan preferences and the parties are, are uh, sorted and, and, and polarized. And so the only long-term way to uh, uh, dissipate the toxic cloud surrounding uh, this process is to have the court rebalance our constitutional order uh, by pushing power back down, back down to the states and, and localities and people, uh, and within Washington, uh, forcing uh, Congress to be the one to to take the contentious issues and not the executive branch. Sure, um, but in the executive branch, uh, it was as you write crucial when then candidate Trump chose to release a list of potential Supreme Court picks. It was instrumental in bringing him support from otherwise skeptical uh, voters. Say a word about the political calculus that went into that decision. And uh, do you think that Joe Biden will release a similar list at some point? Uh, if so, who would we expect to see on it? And if not, why why will he not do that? Well, we're less than a month from the election now, and not only did Trump supplement his list uh, in early September, but he's actually nominated somebody now, and still yeah. Biden hasn't released a list. So I don't, I wouldn't hold my breath uh, <laughs> on that list uh, uh, coming. Uh, and there are several reasons for that. Part of it is that, uh, you know, take Biden at his word. The Democrats really don't want to be talking about judges in the Supreme Court because mm -hmm. it's an issue that uh, both historically and uh, in 2016 has inured to the benefit of the Republican Party uh, in terms of both activating the base and getting those swing voters. I think Donald Trump would not be president now had it not been for Justice Scalia's passing and that issue being uh, 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 thrust into the forefront uh, uh, of uh, the election. Mm -hmm. But the reason that Trump issued a list four years ago uh, and that was an unprecedented move, it's one of many ways in which he broke with conventional political advice um, was because he was um, not fully trusted uh, by Republican voters, by uh, legal uh, elites, by conservatives, evangelicals, all of these different groups that uh, he needed uh, to consolidate in, in order to have a hope to win the election. After all, he had been pro-choice. He had been a donor to Democratic uh, political candidates, all of that history. He had said he'd nominate his sister, all of these different things. And so to shore up that support, consolidate the party, he put out a list uh, as a masterstroke showing that it was the same type of people as conservative constitutionalist Ted Cruz would have put on. Mm -hmm. uh, that was uh, a, a wise move by by his counsel, uh, Don McGahn, who became the White House counsel and architect of the lower court uh, uh, nomination strategy in the first two, two and a half years um, of the Trump administration. Uh, and it did uh, uh, gain him that, that crucial margin of votes in those key states of Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and and, and Michigan. Now, yeah. he didn't have to do that uh, four years later. Uh, he didn't need to supplement his list because at this point he had a record of 
uh, nominations and confirmations, both in quantity and quality. Uh, but I think he did so uh, to reward different parts uh, of his coalition and also to put pressure on Biden. Uh, you know, any time that uh, any news cycle that, that was talking about the court and about judges rather than COVID uh, win for Trump. Uh, yeah. And so that's why he did that. But it looks like uh, Joe Biden has res- resisted uh, that pressure and, and even won't say whether he'll pack the court now. So um, that's, uh, again, because of the asymmetric nature of the different issues that right. the parties want to emphasize. You know, even with the attacks on uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, this time around, you see that a lot of it is about Obamacare, which is mm-hmm. an issue that now polls uh, better for Democrats than for Republicans. Yeah, well, I'm curious about this and and how um, Trump's list may may play out uh, in this election. Justice Gorsuch's decision in Bostock v. Clayton County, in which the court, as you know, in an opinion authored by Justice Gorsuch, held that an employer may not discriminate against an employee based on that employee's sexual preference or gender identity. Uh, Like I said, this decision rattled some conservatives and has caused some to second guess this deal that was struck President Trump saying, we'll vote for you. In return, you need to give us rock solid originalists. Uh, Senator Hawley, Josh Hawley, for example, has been very outspoken on this. What what do you make of this? Do you think that he'll lose some support on this? I don't know. Um, I mean, Bostock is one case. And uh, the idea that Gorsuch has moved to the left or, uh, you know, or that because of that one decision, textualism is discredited, uh, I think, is vastly overstating the case in light of everything else Gorsuch has done, including in religious liberty cases later that term, uh, where he even in a couple of times went further than even the majority in upholding um, uh, those kinds of uh, concerns. Um, you know, the Josh Hawley standard of, of an explicit litmus test over abortion or other things, I mean, that that would have the uh, result of not having allowed Clarence Thomas to join the court. Uh-huh. Uh, he, in his confirmation hearing, famously said that he never really thought a lot about uh, abortion uh, in in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, plus, uh, you know, you can only maintain an litmus test like that if you have a supermajority of Republican senators. So maybe when the Republicans have 60 senators and they can afford to lose, uh, you know, half a dozen in the middle, then. Uh, that became that becomes a political possibility. Uh, uh-huh. You know, un, un, until then, I'm not sure how how wise uh, that is. But certainly, there's a uh, you know, I, I think a frustration with John Roberts, who also uh, was on uh, that side of of Bostock, as, in, in addition to all sorts of other deviations. I think it's greater than than with Gorsuch, and certainly with uh, both Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. I don't think there is uh, there is uh, uh, that fear. Uh-huh. Well, for the last segment of this podcast, I'd like to talk about what's what's about to happen over the next couple of weeks with President Trump's nominee, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, this has, of course, sparked outrage, as, as just about everything does these days, with Senator McConnell being lambasted for being a, a hypocrite, for uh, saying he will move forward with Judge Barrett's nomination uh, after refusing to consider President Obama's nominee, Judge Merrick Garland, back in 2016. What do you think? I think uh, many senators from both parties are hypocrites. They've just reversed positions. McConnell um, did not say uh, that uh, nobody, no justice should be confirmed in the fourth year uh, of a presidential term. He said uh, when the parties are divided, right. and particularly 
uh, in the run-up to 2016 when Obama won in 2012 and then Republicans took the Senate in 2014. There needed to be a rubber match. So he was making that kind of uh, argument, which at mm -hmm. the end of the day, I'm not sure uh, persuaded any voters who to change their minds from either opposing or, or supporting uh, that maneuver. Um, but, uh, you know, the united versus divided government thing uh, historically is, is borne out. Um, yeah. In an election year, there have been 29. Uh, this is now the 30th time uh, that we've had an election year uh, 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 vacancy arise. And when it's united government, 17 of the 19 have resulted in confirmations. When it's divided, two of the 10, one of them after the election, have resulted in confirmation. So historically speaking, um, you know, that's uh, that's a valid uh, point to make. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's politics all the way down. And it's not surprising that uh, politicians would be uh, flip floppy uh, or hypocritical, however you want to uh, call it. I'm a little surprised the Democrats aren't making the process argument more strongly, just, you know, boycotting it altogether, um, you know, making the inverse of what the Republicans said about Garland and kind of not attacking Barrett at all and just mm -hmm. making the pure process argument in the hopes of maybe even convincing Barrett supporters to uh, vote for them uh, out of a dislike for Trump or, or, or what have you. But sure. that ship has sailed. Uh, and so uh, it looks like, uh, barring some something unforeseen, uh, th there will be a vote uh, probably before the election. There, the Republicans are lining up all their ducks, and even despite the COVID outbreak uh, in the White House, extending to a few senators, apparently hearings are going to start October 12th uh, and go for four days, which means sets up a vote uh, on the floor about two weeks after that, which is ahead of the election. Mm -hmm. Um, and we'll see. I mean, there's a lot. That's a lot of time. Lots of things can happen. And, and we'll see the the unique circumstance of the Democrats vice presidential nominee, Kamala Harris, who's on the Senate Judiciary Committee, questioning yeah. the Supreme Court nominee, right. Amy Coney Barrett. A lot could happen out of that. That's significant to the confirmation process as well as to the election. Mm -hmm. In Supreme Disorder, you write that the most contentious nominations are those that threaten a shift in the court's jurisprudence. And we certainly have that here with Ruth Bader Ginsburg potentially being replaced by Judge Amy Coney Barrett. So what should we expect? Do you expect this will be ugly? I don't think it'll be like her Seventh Circuit confirmation mm -hmm. um, in terms of attacking her faith directly. That backfired on the Democrats then, or for that matter, it elevated her profile to a national level, that whole uh, dogma lives loudly within you, which sounds yeah. like a rejected Star Wars line. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, she she might not be the nominee had that not happened. Uh, right. you know, made her a, essentially a martyr. Um, there will be attacks uh, substantively on 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 Obamacare and on abortion, uh, no doubt. Um, but you know, there there is no filibuster in their arsenal. Um, there's probably not going to be sexual assault or sexual harassment. Uh, uh, allegations, uh, mm -hmm. trying to make something out of her uh, interracial adoption. I mean, that's a head scratcher. I don't, I yeah. don't see how that benefits their campaign. So ultimately, uh, you know, they might try the kind of uh, rolling filibuster with uh, Spartacus moments that we saw in the first part of the Kavanaugh hearing, even before we got to Christine Blasey Ford. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, she, uh, Judge Barrett, is going to be very, very tough to attack uh, personally. I think we'll see a rapid shift to. Um, just uh, making the process argument or or attacking uh, President Trump uh, using her as a, as a proxy for that. Sure. Uh, you recently published a piece on Judge Amy Coney Barrett entitled The Brilliance Lives Loudly Within Her. 
and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, you write that, quote, Judge Amy Coney Barrett has the potential not simply to be another originalist voice or a vote for conservative, if not always libertarian, outcomes, but to be an intellectual leader on the Supreme Court, end quote. Uh, so in closing, oh yeah, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the brilliance of Amy Coney Barrett and what we might expect from Justice Amy Coney Barrett. She was a prolific academic, publishing a lot of law review articles and showing exactly how her jurisprudence uh, matches that of her mentor, your grandfather, Antonin Scalia. Uh, in fact, at her uh, remarks in the Rose Garden ceremony, she says that uh, Scalia's jurisprudence is my jurisprudence. Right. Um, uh, and both her academic writings and her judicial opinions these last three years uh, bear that out. Um, um, you know, judges shouldn't uh, insert their policy views. They should interpret the text as written or constitutional provisions uh, as enacted. And she's shown that in a variety of disputes, whether with respect to criminal procedure, where Justice Scalia was uh, often a, a friend of the criminal defendant when there were violations of the Fourth or Sixth Amendment, uh, whether with the Second Amendment, where uh, she has a, a, a very important dissent in a case called Cantor versus Barr, a dissent that's longer than the majority opinion uh, respecting uh, a felon uh, uh, barring fe nonviolent felons from owning firearms. It's a case of, of Medicare fraud that's decades old and still the person can't can't have a firearm. Um, whether in cases of due process, whether in cases of uh, abortion regulation, a very thoughtful judge, not knee jerk, not uh, emotional, not result oriented, but basically showing that it, uh, you know, showing her work in a, a very scholarly way. And as we saw uh, at the Rose Garden remarks, as well as those people that have been studying her speeches, she's charming, she's gracious, that's right, uh, dis very disarming. I mean, yeah. uh, the the kind of central narrative of my examiner cover story were those rose garden remarks because i mean you watch that and you know how can you how can you attack her i mean she's she's humble she's eloquent she's gracious um that's why i say that uh you know even beyond her intellect and her clearly uh capable uh, uh lawyering uh, that she uh could really be an intellectual force well our guest today has been Ilya shapiro we have been discussing his excellent new book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Ilya, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Well, there you have it, Ilya Shapiro on his new book, Supreme Disorder. You'll be hard pressed to find a more timely topic and hard pressed to find someone better suited to talk about it than Ilya Shapiro. I encourage everyone to get a copy or two of Supreme Disorder. It's a fantastic account of the politics of the court, including how we got here and where we might go from here. I'll also add that as many of you know, we recently aired a recording of a lecture Judge Amy Coney Barrett delivered at the Madison program back in 2019. Be sure to give that a listen. That'll do it for us today. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes. Mm -hmm.